The title of this sermon today is Simple Faith and Plain Truth. We'll start with a joke. You know that joke is just to re relax me, right? So a mountain climber fell over a cliff and was falling headlong into a distant ravine. He was screaming, he was clutching, he was waving his arms. He was trying to grab anything that would keep him from falling. His hand latched onto a twig that was growing horizontally out of the middle of a rock. And he held onto that twig and he thought, what do I do now? What would you do? He started yelling, help, help, is anybody up there? And a voice says, I'm here, I'm God. He said, great, what do I do? What do I do now? God said, let go of the twig and I'll catch you. And the man said, is there anybody else up there? <laughs> that's a joke I heard a long time ago. And that's how we are, isn't it? We sometimes question the things that God has asked us to do. But his ways are not our ways. His ways are higher. I'm privileged to share with you some truths from the story of Gideon today. So, from the story of Gideon. We'll be working on the book of Judges, if you want to turn there now. I'll be reading from an NIV translation, and since many of you use Bible apps on your phone, finding different translations is easy. For those of you who don't have a Bible with you or carry a different version, the main passages we're using today will be on the screen behind me. But first, let me tell you why the story of Gideon is a favorite among Bible accounts for me. In 2001, my husband Jim had a minuscule nick on his finger when he came home from work. No big deal. He said he'd been working around some water that day and that little nick was hurting a bit, stinging. Jim worked underground. Jim was a coal miner for 34 years. And it's hard to know how long that water had been there or what was in it. He had washed it with soap and water, and we added some peroxide and a Band-Aid. But in the morning, his finger was really hurting, and it was red. I cleaned it again and put salve on it. By afternoon, his finger was swollen and red. By dinner time, Jim had a streak rising from his finger up past his wrist. And I knew he had blood poisoning. So we went to the ER. At the hospital, they took that red streak very seriously, especially because Jim was a heart transplant patient, or a heart patient, and the streak was going up his left arm. Four days after combinations of IVs and antibiotics and four infectious disease doctors, they decided he could lose his arm and exploratory surgery was necessary. They said it was some kind of flesh-eating bacteria. Flesh-eating bacteria? That was a new term in our world then, much like coronavirus is for us now. It certainly caused fear in us and in our family. Jim's hand and arm were extremely swollen, and the back of his hand had begun to split open. 
but a friend in a large metropolitan hospital warned me against allowing him to have surgery. She said it could set whatever bacteria was in there free to the rest of his body. So I set my sights on the University Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, because we lived in Ohio. It was a state-of-the-art hospital compared to where we were. Our hospital was more like Sharon or Horizon. It was a big hospital with great doctors, all the greatest diagnostic equipment, all the specialists. I was tired and worn out from the stress of carrying this worry on my shoulders, tired and worn out from the stress of the treatments that didn't work, and Jim had been unconscious for a couple of days with fever and chills and pain medicine because it was very painful. I fought the local doctors and the insurance company to get him to this great hospital. Ta-da! Oh, did I tell you it was 2001? Did I tell you it was September 2001? It wasn't 9-11, but it was 9-20. And it was, it was a chaotic time in America. Just a few days before, terrorists had bombed the World Trade Center. Everyone in America was on edge. We didn't know we had been, why we had been bombed or what would happen next. I think most of us can identify with those feelings and fears at this present time, can't we? We don't know what's going to happen now in our world. Things are changing all around us. Look at us with our masks on. Many of us watching and listening to church services from home because we have very, very little control over what's happening here and now. In 2001, I prayed hard for Jim as I followed the ambulance two and a half hours to the Columbus Hospital, knowing, believing with all my heart that that was the answer, that they would save his arm and his life. The transport took place in the middle of the night. It was a busy time for hospitals and ambulances, as it is now. On arrival, they stuck me in a room with, a, with very little light, for some reason, and they whisked Jim off for tests down the hall. My head was spinning. I looked around the room of this tremendous hospital that was going to save my husband, and I was very disappointed. The light switches weren't working right, but I could still see that the room had a sloppy-looking bed in it, nothing like our nurses would present. The floor had bits of paper and dust bunnies on it. When I looked out into the hallway for a nurse or an aide, I just saw people who looked straight through me. Worst of all, there was a hole in the wall of the drywall, as though some violent thing had happened in that room, and it all reminded me of the news coverage I'd been watching for the last nine days. I was at the end of my rope. My shoulders ached from sleeplessness and worry. I felt like I had done everything. I had done everything I could do. Jim needed help, and I had gotten him to this great hospital, and I ended up in another frightening situation. What more could I have done? I sat down on that, 
on a little footstool at the, at the foot of the bed. You know the kind the doctor often has in his office for children to step up on to get on the, on the table? <clears throat> it was sitting there in the room, and it, and it wasn't clean either. So I sat down on that dirty little footstool. I dropped my head in my hands, and I cried like a baby. I had come to the end of myself. But when I had calmed down, God reminded me of the story of Gideon. It's just like him. It's just like the Holy Spirit to remind us of the very scripture that we need at exactly the right time. Amen? That's our God. My daughter and my granddaughter would arrive at the hospital the next morning, but through the night, God encouraged me. He strengthened me with Gideon's story, and I think you might be encouraged by it too. At some point, I hope you'll, maybe this week, I hope you'll get into the book of Judges and read the entire thing. When you do, you'll see that there's a pattern repeated over and over. But for now, I'm going to skim some of the background for you, and we'll begin in chapter 2. Gideon was the son of a spiritually bankrupt, poor family. He was a farmer's son. His father had turned away from God and was worshiping an idol named Baal. In fact, God's generation, the whole generation, Gideon's generation, did not know the Lord, so they worshiped idols and did evil in the sight of God. The Hebrew people were rebellious, and they had forgotten their own history of deliverance out of the land of Egypt and into the promised land. So God punished them, and he allowed the Midianites to overrun them. For seven years, the Midianites took almost all of the crops the Israelites grew and stole their animals. The Israelites were living in caves and hiding from the hordes of marauders who traveled on camels and always had the upper hand. Gideon was so afraid, as were all the others, that he was threshing wheat in an underground wine press. Normally, threshing was done on a high hill where the wind could blow the dust and chaff off the unusable grain, the usable grain. <clears throat> Pardon me. Usually, animals with special shoes would tromp around on the wheat to help separate the wheat from the chaff. But here, in chapter 6 now, a very frightened Gideon is hiding his work in a wine press. <clears throat> Let's begin reading in Judges, chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak at Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abezrite where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. 
The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. May God add blessing to the reading of his word. We can see from this scripture that Gideon believes in God only enough to blame him for his suffering. I know some people like that too. He says to him, uh, if, you're, if God is with us, why is this happening to us? I'm guessing, though, that the sight of an angel did stir him up a little bit because Gideon asks for a sign. Just in case God really has decided to favor him with this task, Gideon wants to be sure. He asks the angel to wait while he prepares a meal. While the, when the meal is ready, the angel instructs Gideon to place the meat and bread on a rock and pour broth on it. Lots of moisture. Gideon is to place the meat and the bread on the rock. Then the angel of the Lord touches the offering with the tip of his staff, and fire comes up out of the rock and consumes the meal. Now that's a pretty startling picture, isn't it? Fire comes up out of the rock and consumes the meal. Then the angel departs. It's just, just like an angel, isn't it? But Gideon is left believing that it truly was the angel of the Lord. So you see, God's made some progress with Gideon. The angel had called Gideon a mighty man of valor. Gideon was not a charismatic leader, and that's what judges were in that time. Judges were not like Supreme Court judges or, you know, the attorney down the street and on every street corner. Judges were charismatic men with great leadership ability that uh, led people through difficult times. Um, Joshua was a judge. Before him, Moses led the people. Uh, Gideon's not yet a judge. Probably doesn't realize that's where he's headed, but that is where he's headed. But he was not a hero. He spent his time being fearful and hiding. This poor, lowly man was being asked to be the one, the one, to step up and save the life of Israel. God wanted him to come out of the dark, out of the cave, out of the winepress, and lead Israel to victory against a very overwhelming foe. Gideon had asked the Lord for a sign. And God had given him a sign, and he believed a little. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. It's always good when you start a really serious command with that. Peace be unto you. Do not fear. You will not die. You know something's coming. So Gideon... built an altar to the Lord because of the peace he felt 
from those words. And he called that altar, the Lord is peace. Progress, wouldn't you say? That same night, the Lord told Gideon to tear down the altar of Baal that was on his father's property. He told him to tear down the altar and the wooden image that stood beside it. He told him to then build an altar to the Lord your God on that rock and make a burnt offering with the wood of the wooden image that he cut down. That was a fearful task, to go against his father, to go against the city, the people that worshipped there. Gideon again did as he was asked, even though he did wait until dark, out of fear of his father and the community that worshipped. We can forgive him for doing it in the dark, can't we? You see, God was growing Gideon's faith, but Gideon often takes a bad rap from people because he asked for so many signs. He kept questioning God, and, you know, surely he'd be struck with lightning for questioning God, but no. Gideon did as he was asked, but he did it in the dark. You see, God was growing Gideon's faith. He called Gideon a man of valor. He saw Gideon for the leader that he could be instead of the angry young man that Gideon felt he was. Gideon must have seen himself as a, a loser, a shameful loser, hiding in caves and wine presses. But he had stopped making excuses. And now he was walking in a simple faith, a, a little bit of faith. He knew nothing about how to win a battle. We're all fighting some kind of battle, aren't we? We're fighting against fear. We're fighting against pain. We're fighting against health issues. We're fighting addictions. We're fighting loneliness. We're fighting depression. We're fighting to save a relationship, to pay the bills, to see your kids saved, to keep a career fighting to graduate from school for many of our young people. Going to school now is a luxury. Gideon had a very short relationship with God at this point, but he'd already been strengthened by God's belief in him. I remember a long time ago <clears throat> seeing a t-shirt that said, if you're having trouble believing in God, perhaps it will help you to know that he believes in you. He believes in us. Look what he's done for us. Look how he's prepared for us. Do you know that God believes in you? That he sees you as you could be and not as you are? God doesn't focus on our shortfalls. Thank God. He isn't swayed by our lack of anything. Our excuses as to why we can't possibly do anything big for God are useless because he knows the truth. God has never had a perfect person to carry out his designs. And as I wrote this, I thought, <clears throat> well, I don't know, maybe Billy Graham. 
And then I read this about Billy Graham. He was so nervous when he got up to preach the first time that he had four sermons prepared, completely prepared four sermons. He delivered them all in 10 minutes. So God has had no perfect people to carry out his plans. Gideon was afraid. Moses stuttered. Noah got drunk. Abraham was too old. Jacob was a liar. Isaac was a daydreamer. Rahab was a prostitute. Joseph was abused. Samson was a womanizer. Jeremiah and Timothy were too young. David was an adulterer. Jonah ran from God. Naomi was widowed. Job went bankrupt. John the Baptist was stinky. Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep. Martha worried about everything. The Samaritan woman, the Samaritan woman was married five times. Zacchaeus was too short and Lazarus was dead. None of that stopped the Lord. We all know their stories. In spite of all those things, we know their stories because God is God and we are not. So Gideon took his simple faith and was willing to do as the Lord asked. When the men of the city arose the next morning and saw the altar to Baal had been destroyed, they demanded to know who had done this. When they discovered it was Gideon, son of Joash, the men said to Joash, bring your son out so he can die for tearing down the altar and the image of Baal beside it. But Gideon's father said, if Baal didn't strike him with light, well, that's not exactly what he said. What he said was, but if Baal didn't stop him, then let him plead for himself. Let Baal, who was supposed to be a god, plead for himself. There was nothing heard from the supposed god Baal, of course. Now, Gideon's name was known for something other than being fearful. God had given him the chance to be known as a man of valor. He had been obedient, and that obedience led to Gideon's name being lifted up in the city as a leader, as the leader God intended him to be all along. What if Gideon had not been obedient? What if he had not torn down the image of Baal in, on his father's property? Gideon was becoming a judge. The Bible tells us in verse 33 that the Midianites and the Amalekites gathered together. So you see, Gideon is making this progress. God is bringing him along. God is growing his faith. And of course, the enemy is mounting an attack. Now, the Amalekites have joined the Midianites, and they're gathered together, and they're camped in the valley of Jezreel. And the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, verse 34, and he blew a trumpet. He blew a trumpet. Do, 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 do. He 
He blew a trumpet, summoning the Abyssalites to follow him. Oh, guess who the Abyssalites were? They were the very people who wanted to kill Gideon for tearing down the altar to Baal. But they saw his leadership. They saw him stand up. And they needed someone to stand up to the Midianites and the Amalekites. When Gideon blew the trumpet, 32,000 men responded. 32,000. 32,000 that were tired of being afraid. 32,000 that were ready to be free. 32,000 that wanted to get out of poverty and live a normal life and prosper and raise their children in freedom. They had hope again because God was rising up a leader. They answered the call of Gideon's trumpet because he stood up to an entire city and erected an altar to the one true God. God honored Gideon's obedience and gave him the support he might need for the next battle. Now hold on to your hats because there may be some listening who don't know how careful Gideon was or how deep his insecurities were. Since he was a young boy, he had been afraid of the Midianites. It's a little difficult to get rid of fears like that. But his faith is growing. You see, Gideon's faith in God was growing every time he was obedient, just like us. But he still had some doubt. He, Gideon, could not possibly be the man that God wanted to lead such an impressive army. I mean, he blew the horn. He probably thought there'd be a lot to respond. But 32,000? Wow, now this task is really too big for him. He's not the leader of an army. He's a wheat farmer. Maybe God would allow him to fetch water or be a lookout. But God did mean for Gideon to lead the army. So Gideon asked God for another sign. He says, I'll put a fleece on the floor of the wine press. I'll put a fleece on the ground, and if it's wet in the morning and the ground is dry all around it, I'll know I'm the one. I'm the one. I'm the one. I'll know. In the morning, Gideon rang out a bowl full of water from the fleece, and the ground all around it was dry as dust. Did Did Gideon say, I'm the one? I'm the one. No, he didn't. Then Gideon said to God, Please, please don't be angry with me, but let me speak once more. In the morning, Lord, let the fleece be dry and the ground all around it be wet. And the next morning, it was just as Gideon said. The Lord did not roll his eyes or show his displeasure over Gideon's need for encouragement. God didn't condemn or belittle Gideon. He didn't respond with impatience. When our kids ask something over and over and over, how do we respond? Hmm. Sometimes with impatience. I remember when our granddaughter was about four years old, she was riding in the back of the 
car and I, I was watching her in the rearview mirror and uh, she was talking a blue streak I mean just you know how little girls can do I couldn't get I couldn't get a thought in edgewise let alone a word she kept talking about I can't remember what it was some game some doll some show I don't know but all I know is I said Megan Grammy's ears need a rest and in the rearview mirror, I saw her go. And then she said, you want to talk about trucks? <laughs> she was a talker. She was really a talker. I was impatient with her. But God was not impatient with Gideon. When we need help, he stands ready to answer. He gives and gives and gives because he loves and loves and loves. That's God. That's the God I know. Do you know that God? Do you know that God? Amen. His posture is always leaning into us, leaning forward leaning near us not with his arms crossed not leaning back not turning away that's not the way God does it he is our patient loving father his posture every time is to give us hope and help us he wants us to believe that we are who he says we are We often overthink the whole thing. It's our highly developed brains that get us in trouble. It isn't logical to Gideon that God wants his help. It just doesn't make sense. He's too beaten. He was too beaten down. And, and even though he's, has grown some, God has grown some faith in him, Gideon still has the habit of putting himself down, which many of us do. I read an illustration in a book called In Search of Excellence, and it goes like this. If you place a bottle, <clears throat> if you place in a bottle half a dozen bees and the same number of flies, you will find that the bees will persist until they die of exhaustion or hunger in their endeavor to discover an escape through the glass. But the flies, in less than two minutes, will all have sallied forth through the neck on the opposite side. It is there, the bees, love of light. It's their very intelligence that's their undoing in this experiment. They evidently imagine that the issue from every prison must be there where the light shines the brightest. And they act in accordance. And they persist in too logical of an action. To them, glass is a supernatural mystery they have never met in nature. They have no experience of this suddenly impenetrable atmosphere. And the greater their intelligence, the more inadmissible the more incomprehensible and all the strange obstacle just appears. 
No. The more incomprehensible will the strange obstacle appear. Whereas the feather brain flies, careless of logic or the enigma of crystal, disregarding the call of the light, flutter hither and thither, and meeting here the good fortune that often waits on the simple who find salvation where the wiser will perish, necessarily by discovering the friendly open that restores their liberty to them in the darkness. You see, bees have <clears throat> one million neurons in their little brains, about, about, about one million. But they can't think their way through the glass. Flies have only about 100,000 neurons. They try this, they try that, they do it again, they do something else, they go another way, they keep moving and moving and buzzing and flipping and flopping. They don't think about the way out or hypothesize about the light at the end of the bottle. They just go and go and go, hither and thither until they're free. The bees have so much confidence in the sunlight and in themselves that they die from exhaustion, smacking their little heads against the glass over and over and over. Well, here's the bad news. We humans, we have about 86 billion neurons in our brains. The flies, uh, the flies have uh, 100,000. The bees have a million. We have 86 billion. And sometimes that makes us very hard, makes it very hard for us to stop thinking and just trust God. We should trust what he's saying and how he's leading. We have so much brain power that we sometimes think we know more than God. So a cowboy is riding along on an old trail in the Old West, and he sees an Indian lying on his stomach with his ear to the ground. He gets closer. He hears the Indian saying to himself, wagon, two gray horses, two passengers, man, woman, man driving. The cowboy says, wow, you can tell all that just by putting your ear to the ground? The Indian replies, no, wagon passed half an hour ago, ran over me. But in this historical account that we have of Gideon, he was honest with God once again, admitting his self-doubt, and God patiently built Gideon up. They had a relationship. They were Gideon was operating within this relationship to gain confidence in himself. He stayed connected to God through his doubts and fears. Gideon did not pretend to have no doubt or fear. The Lord was grooming Gideon to be a man of great courage, and Gideon was going to need it. In the next breath, God tells Gideon his army is too large. God was about to deliver the Israelites from their terrible oppressors. He wanted to make it clear that although he had chosen a judge to lead them, it was he himself who would win the battle. He directs Gideon to tell 
any of the men who are afraid to go to war to go home. What? Afraid to go to war? Who isn't afraid to go to war? Well, two-thirds of the men went home. They probably kicked up their heels on the way out, just as Gideon thought it would be. But he was obedient to what God told him to do. Didn't make sense. Wasn't logical. But he did what God asked him to do. Then the Lord tells Gideon he still has too many men. He directs Gideon to take the army to the water, and any who get down and lap water like dogs send them home. Well, getting down and lapping water like dogs would mean that they would have to take off all of their paraphernalia and and all of their accoutrements and war stuff. They wouldn't be prepared for battle while they were down there lapping water like a dog. But the men who cup their hand, God said, and bring the water to their mouths, keeping their eyes on the horizon, those men, Gideon, you can keep. I worked at a boys' home in Wheeling for several years, boys that were abused, seriously abused children. I remember being at the dinner table one night because it was a group home, and I remember, I remember one of the counselors saying to me, you notice how all these boys don't, take their, don't look down at their food when they're eating? And I looked, and sure enough, they didn't. He said, it's because in their homes they were never safe. They never knew when something was going to come flying at them. They never knew when they were going to need to duck or run or or throw up their arm in protection. So the men that Gideon was allowed to keep had kept their eyes up, ready for battle. They were alert. They were ready to go. 300 men cupped water, and the rest were sent home. Gideon's army of 32,000 had been reduced to 300. It was 1% of its original size. There were 400 Midianites for every Israelite. Now the Lord had one more bit of encouragement for Gideon. He instructed Gideon to go sneak up on the Midian encampment, and if he was afraid to do that, to take his servant with him. Of course, Gideon took the servant with him. (laughs) Don't you know that God knew there was still fear? Now the Midianites and the Amalekites were in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number. Imagine this, as the sand on the seashore were the Midianites and the Amalekites. This is not the encouraging part of what God was doing for Gideon. But next, Gideon hears a man interpret a dream that is about Gideon. This is his enemy, one of his enemies, as interpreting a dream. And the dream is about Gideon in battle. In the dream, God delivers the entire Midian camp into the hands of Gideon. Gideon, the son of the farmer who hid in the wine press to thresh the wheat because of his great fear. Gideon, who once had 32,000 men, was expected to have faith with only 300. And this is where you find me sitting on the dirty little stool at the end of the sloppy bed in the dim hospital room.
When I stopped crying and started praying, I remembered the story of Gideon just a few days ago. All at once, I realized that I had put my faith in the state-of-the-art hospital. I'd put my faith in world-renowned specialists. I'd put my faith in my ability to help, in my ability to help Jim, to get him where he needed to go. What a silly bee I was. I couldn't think my way out of a glass bottle. God used a dirty hospital room and the story of Gideon to help me refocus and grow my faith, to help me refocus on him. It would be the Lord who would save my husband's arm and his life. He might use hospitals and medicine and doctors to help heal Jim, but God was the healer. He is the creator who sent his son to battle. Sin, battle, death, battle, illness, battle, anxiety, battle, everything we fight. I got up from the stool with my faith rightfully focused on God. I'll never forget that. I haven't forgotten it in all these years. So Gideon and his servant came back from the camp worshiping God. They told the little army about the dream their enemy had unknowingly interpreted for them. Gideon told the men, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the Midian army into your hands. Well, the plan was for the 300 men to move around the enemy camp under the cover of darkness and position themselves in three groups of 100. This was the strategic plan. Each of them had a big clay pitcher with a torch inside, and each man had a trumpet. Now, it would have been really great if they'd have had cell phones and they just could have turned on the, the uh, flashlight app uh, like you know, like we used to do at uh, concerts. But, um, well, before that, it was lighters. Anybody remember that? Yep. They would overwhelm the Midianites by the power of God with sudden light from torches and the blast of 300 trumpets, their shouts of courage, and victory would, and their victory would confuse the enemy. Their shouts of victory would confuse the enemy. They were going to be victorious before the battle was won, and yes, that would help confuse the enemy. If you'll stand with me, please. We're going to read Judges 7, 19 through 23. We stand to honor God's word. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. Just after <clears throat> they had changed the guard, they blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding up their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, the Midianites ran, crying, and fled. 
When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men to, throughout the camp, to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittah, towards Zerah, and as far as the border of Abel Morah near Tabith. And verse 28 reads, Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again during Gideon's lifetime. The land had peace for 40 years. Does anybody feel like praising the Lord? They turned on themselves. They turned on themselves. I have a question. Do you have a simple faith? I know that many of you here have been Christians a long time. But there are some who might need a simple faith, a little faith. Because I promise you that the plain truth is you need him. You need Jesus, the Christ, like you need air to breathe. You need him to fight your battles. You need him to calm your fears. You need him to give you peace. You need him. There's no other name by which a person can be saved, delivered, healed, comforted, and peace for your anger is in him. Peace for your anger is in him. If you've joined us through technology today or in person, thank you for being here and God bless you. I pray that you'll remember the story of Gideon. I pray that you'll be kind to Gideon. The Lord understood him the way he understands us. The Lord was never impatient with Gideon. And we cannot be impatient with those who struggle with what God has asked them to do. Because God is the one who grows our faith. Yes, it takes our obedience, but God is the one who is working with them, not us. I want to give you a chance to respond to this message. So if you'll close your eyes and bow your heads, Wherever you are, if you don't know this battle-fighting Savior, bow your head and pray with me. God, I need you. I cannot do life well on my own. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. Please come into my heart and teach me your faithful ways. I accept your love and salvation. If you prayed that prayer, tell someone, contact us or a Bible-based church near you. You just took a wonderful step of faith, and you are part of the family of God. Reach out for guidance and support. Christians, wherever you are today, have you missed place even a portion of your faith? It happens. It happened to me. And I didn't realize it. Pray with me. Oh, God, I didn't mean for this to happen. I love you. I know you are the one true God. Please help me in my momentary unbelief. I praise you and only you. 
And now, God of heaven, God of earth, go with us. Grant us peace, for it's in Jesus' name that we live and breathe and have our being. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you. You are dismissed.